Stories from California Cattle Country is produced by the California Cattlemen's Foundation and receives support from the California Cattle Council. We've created this podcast to communicate the stories of the people and practices from far-flung ranches and dairies throughout the state to better connect them with the customers they serve. When you spend time in a certain area or environment, you can often fall victim to ubiquity. In actuality, wherever you live, you're likely surrounded by flora and fauna unique to anywhere else in the world. With the rigors of everyday life, we can be distracted to the point where we don't recognize the complexity and beauty of the wildlife around us, even in urban areas. Where I live, in Sacramento, when I take the time to look around, I've seen crows dropping acorns in front of cars to get them cracked. Months ago, in my backyard, I witnessed the very same crows mobbing a raven in a large tree, where the raven mimicked quite convincingly the sounds of a much more formidable hawk in an attempt to deter them. Just the other day, while staring out the window of my home office preparing for this very podcast, I saw for the first time a diminutive, beautiful western bluebird perched on the streetside parking sign. Every year, millions of waterfowl go on a commute of thousands of miles and require respite in natural areas with water and sustenance. California ranches often fulfill such needs and have preserved enough pit stops throughout the Pacific Flyway. In fact, many of the ranchers I've met are birders who revel in the return of the waterfowl seasonally. No one to expect their arrival and provide habitat to preserve their travels for years to come. In this visit, we go to Roberti Ranch in Sierra Valley, one of these critical pit stops for waterfowl, and talk to rancher Rick Roberti about his infatuation with his annual winged visitors and with Jill Slocum from the Plumas Audubon Society. A cynical person may have trouble imagining a fourth-generation rancher welcoming people from a local environmental organization for a tour of their ranch, but this is exactly what that was. The Sierra Valley was settled over 100 years ago and is currently almost entirely owned by private parties, most of them ranchers. Without access to private property, birders and conservationists are relegated to narrow roads crisscrossing the valley, where they have to block a lane to pull over to see anything. With Roberti Ranch, the ranchers and the Audubon have found common ground, with that ground belonging to the Roberti family. We were fortunate to be included in a tour of the ranch, in a small bus the Roberti family purchased four tours. On the tour, members of the Audubon would point out species of interest where Rick would highlight measures the ranch has undertaken to improve and preserve bird habitat. I'm Ryan Donahue, and this is Stories from California Cattle Country. My name is Rick Roberti. Uh, we are in Sierra Valley, which is in Plumas County, about 30 miles north of Lake Tahoe, and we're a high desert area. We're used to dry years, and so uh, my family came here from Switzerland, one side of the family that settled in this, this area in the 1800s. And uh, family's been here ever since. And they were dairy farmers, like most of the people in the valley at that time. And now we've graduated, I guess we would say, to the beef herd business now. And we raise alfalfa hay, myself, along with my two brothers, their families, and my mother still on the ranch. Jill Slocum. I'm a member of Plumas Audubon Society. Our local chapter handles Plumas Audubon, um, serves Sierra County, Plumas County, Lassen County, but we're based in Quincy. Specialize in areas, and I just spend a lot of time looking and helpfully helping habitat preservation for areas that are particularly important for both migratory birds and birds that breed, live here year round. Sierra Valley is a truly special place. And the Roberti Ranch is one of my favorite places to be. And the Robertis have been more than generous over the years in allowing our group, our organization, to come out on field trips. Can you explain what about the kind of the microclimate here is so beneficial to the migratory birds? It is the largest alpine valley, is my understanding, in the Sierra. And it has a combination of wetlands, a lot of grain, a lot of crops. And without the food, 
the birds aren't going to be able to stay and thrive here. The water is critical. There's fish. Rick is probably better able to describe the variety of habitat that we have for birds. National Audubon has designated as an important bird area, and there aren't very many of those around the country. This is one of them. It seems it's really interesting that given that this area was settled so long ago by so many ranches, it's kind of locked in. It's mostly owned by ranchers. How important is it that you guys, Audubon, get access to these areas? For us, it's critical. And there are other organizations, other environmental organizations that care a lot. Trout Unlimited has a real presence. The Native Plant Society has a real presence. And the Feather River Land Trust has done a lot of work with individual ranches, some places just buying the property outright. There are several large preserves now, and they also do conservation easements. All of these things can be controversial, but the valley is large, and these efforts, some of them are geared at protecting habitat that's important for all kinds of wildlife and plants. And Rick, what was the point when you first, or that the Audubon Society first had access to this property, and how did that come to be? Well, we were encouraged by organizations through our livestock advisor that we need to start telling our story. We make up about 1% of the population in this country, and it's hard to get our voice out. So if we don't start telling our own story, someone tells it for us, and it's quite often is not true. So we need to kind of defend ourselves, and the best way to do that is to show people what you do. Myself, always been interested in wildlife and in birds, and always felt there was a need to get some of these people engaged with what we do and on the property. It's, it's very hard for them to see park alongside of a road and try and get a good look at a bird. And then someone's mad at them because they're taking up half the road. So our intention was to, first of all, show them what we're doing, that we're taking care of the land. And secondly, meet them so that if they have a question about something, we, we can be there to answer for it. And when in a country where no one trusts anymore, the one thing that can help is if I trust somebody and they trust me, then they might be a little more believable if it comes to a subject that maybe they don't understand. So I um, feel very fortunate that the Audubon Society has uh, been coming out and for the friendships we've made. And we're not a big community here, so we, we serve on other things together also. So uh, it, it's been great for us too. We don't agree on everything. And then, but we don't have to agree on everything to have a common ground to make it better for the for birds or whatever it is. And if the farmers are doing a good job, they should get some credit for that. And if they're not doing a good job, they should be called out on it as well to to do a better job. So when I was reading on the Audubon website, one of the bullet points on things that could affect bird population, it does address grazing is one of the things that could be not good for the bird populations coming through. Are there what kind of things have you done on this ranch that you wouldn't have been doing? before to make it a better place for birds to, to be? Well, I think I think our wetlands are important because water is important to everything, but especially to birds and especially a lot of the birds that we have here. So we've developed some new wetlands. We've protected some of the old ones. And also I can show on spots where we don't graze anymore, the fact of not grazing a piece of property how it hurts the wildlife instead of helps them. So it, it all comes down to management, how it's managed. And I think people understand better when they have a, a view of something taking place because the birds need cattle or something that's going to eat that plant so that not everything matures at the same time so that they have a piece of green grass. So uh, cattle and birds, they do well together if they're managed properly. 
And then you regularly offer spring tours. Is that correct? Yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. We bought a little bus so that we'd had tours before, but then you're going to different cars. So this way we can get 24 people crammed in there and uh, they have to listen to me at that point. And uh, I get to tell them a little bit what we do. Uh, the true birders are interested in seeing birds. So I've learned that we just you get to the birds and it's always fun. They see something that maybe they haven't seen before and they're they always seem pleased that they can come onto private ground and see what we're doing. And uh, it's been real enjoyable and real educational. I mean, we did the tour today and saw a number of species. I don't know how many. It was far more than a dozen. I think I could be wrong. 32 different species. So we saw 32 different species today. I saw a lot of things I haven't seen. And, and that was just in a small period of time. What have you seen here that would surprise most people? You were telling a story about bald eagles. Oh, earlier. I was things telling like a story about how bald eagles were... Uh, attacking a group of snow geese and when the geese would go in the air it looked like a big white puffy cloud and I knew something was harassing them and then I was seeding a field and here comes 10 bald eagles which is pretty rare to see that many bald eagles in a row. I put up a nest for osprey because an osprey is the ones that dive in the water and catch a fish. Well I hadn't seen them out here growing up here my whole life but uh, anyway, so we put up a big tall nest and I haven't, I've seen him up there eating a fish, but I haven't seen him building a nest yet. So wildlife, they're so adaptable and I'm, I'm really pleased to say that wildlife, there's are more abundant today than they were when I was a kid. And there's several factors for that, but it, it does my heart good to know that we think we're doing something right when things are getting stronger in their population than, than going the other direction. I want to switch to Jill just for a minute. So just in preparing for this, I kind of really got, I've always enjoyed wildlife and things like that, but got really specifically into birds. And like, even in my neighborhood, I live in Sacramento, just started kind of being more aware of the birds that are around and things. Can you tell me if there's people that are listening that don't necessarily have the ability to drive out to Sierraville or things, what's a good way to get started birding and say, even in a city? Uh, several things just jumped to mind. One, there'll be, if not a local Audubon chapter, there'll be some bird group. And it is very, very helpful to get to go out with someone who sees things and I can identify things. I am amazed when I go out with an expert who can tell me where the bird is, what it's singing, you know, what time of year it is, where are the differences of the plumage from year, from winter to summer, breeding season, not breeding season. So there, there'll always be cities. There are lots of people in the cities that are very interested in birds, more than happy to share information. There are usually speaker talks. There are often bird walk opportunities, but right at home, head to the local nursery, bird feeders. People will be amazed at what comes in for seed and or nectar. We've got hummingbirds everywhere in California and putting out fresh water and keeping it clean. Birds need water sometimes more than they need food. They can usually find food. They can't always find water, especially now or at the Roberti Ranch. <laughs> uh, can you tell me a little bit about eBird? Yes. eBird is uh, sponsored by Cornell University. If you Google Cornell University birds, something called All About Birds comes up. There's wonderful information about different species. They'll give ranges, pictures, uh, recordings of different sounds. eBird is one of the things they sponsor. And what everybody is encouraged to do who likes birds is to every time they go out, and we did it, some of us did it today, write down everything they see. And it's real, it's compiled nationally, locally, and it really helps as there's changes in wet and dry years, uh, migration, as things in the environment change. 
where birds are showing up where they never have been before or where birds are disappearing. Wildly useful information. It's all on eBird. The Audubon was founded in 1905. And, you know, like Silent Spring didn't come out until 62. Yes. And which is kind of surprising to me how early there became this kind of this kind of environmentally minded institution that was focused on birds. What is it about birds that got people to organize? What's special about them? Others can say whether that is true or not, Ryan, I don't know. But what got Audubon going was there were ladies wearing fancy plumed headgear and dresses, sporting all kinds of egret feathers and exotic (laughs) things. Well, animals were being killed left and right for that. That really was the start of the movement. Can't we do something for these critters so they're not being, and I'm going to use the word butchers slaughtered, for somebody's, yeah, I mean, they're going to the theater or something, you need to wear an ostrich or an egret? No, that was the beginning of it. And as a result of that, there was an obvious need to start documenting what kinds of birds, which types of birds lived where. And there's blossomed into trying to preserve habitat. We're down, we've lost a tremendous number of species of birds over the last years. That's been well publicized. People are interested in finding out where they are. If they are leaving Northern California, for example, are they going to Washington and Alaska or are they disappearing from the earth? That's a lot of the intent of trying to figure out what species lives where. And then on our trip today, in the 32 species of birds that we saw, was there one that was more impressive than the others or one you were happy to see or are they all kind of all all your children? Jill's gaga about birds in general. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't remember seeing anything that I went particularly ooh and ah about. I've been bugging Rick all day about white-faced ibises, which are very common here and they breed in huge numbers on this property. We didn't say today, but it's still early in the season. Sandhill cranes are another big favorite of mine. We saw something in the distance, not close up, but we know they breed here. Uh, We saw a small flock of black-crowned night herons, something most people don't get to see. Yeah, we saw uh, there were a number of shorebirds. American avocet's a very, very attractive bird, long legs, decent size, maybe 10 inches, 12 inches, long curved bill, nice, nice, buffy, mm, almost bronze, not bronze, but a colorful neck. It's good. I hope I got a picture at least one of those so we can refer people back. Rick, do you have any uh, any favorites when you go out, something you look you know, for? You get used to certain ones, and so uh, a lot of the birds you saw today are going to move. The importance of Sierra Valley in the Pacific Flyway is it gives them a resting place to build up for their big journey. Most are going to go nest somewhere else, so several will, will nest here, and I think our habitat has gotten better. The ducks, you know, we were used to them, and I was telling the story of how when we hay a field, cut it for hay when I was a little kid, and a hen would fly out, and my dad would cut around that nest. And so even today, you might see fields where you see this patch of grass out there, and you wonder, well, he skipped that patch of grass. Well, there were dozens of them in our fields, and it was because my mom or my dad would would cut around this nest, and that duck would come back even though it wouldn't didn't look the same. And anyway, and even though it messed up the haying operation because it messed up that windrow and tying into the other, but that was one of the things they did to help the population just because that duck needed a place. And so... I wonder what it looked like from the air. It's similar to fly over. It looked like a corn maze or something. Just, just a bunch of little patches in the field. <laughs> one other special bird, and, and I think, Rick, you might want to talk about the barn owls. And if you still have them, the burrowing owls. Yes, we we do have the barn owls, and I was sharing that they 
kind of took a beating a couple of winters ago. It got pretty cold and that usually doesn't affect them, but for some reason it did. And they're also suffering from a large raven population, which is harassing most every little bird and getting a lot of the, the nests. And we, we do have some artificial nests that have been put up for the barn owls and they're put up from a man from Washington and they'll lay their eggs in the spring and they'll they'll be sitting on eggs when they're still laying eggs. So sometimes the varieties of ages of the owls will be different ages in the nest. And then this man will come back and he will collect the pellets, which is the mouse or the gopher. And then he sells them to universities to uh, for their science projects. So it's helped us because they are the best mouse trap that was ever invented. And we don't have to feed them or take care of them. We need them very badly. And, and I hope we can... Uh, maintain but there there are a lot of nest owl boxes going up around the valley so and we had a beautiful view of a barn owl in one of the nest boxes today it was problem is we don't we don't build barns anymore we build sheds and that's okay but the old barns that were built in the in the at the turn of the century there uh one or two of them go down a year so the barn owl has have to adapt to different places and they do Sometimes we need to help them, and so it's, it's kind of fun. You really need to see a baby owl if you really want to get kind of freaked out the first time. Oh, the, <laughs> yeah. They're funny. Well, yeah. Last time I hear, I, th I think you had like horned owls. Oh, or yeah, something. we did have some horned owls. And those babies look ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. One more oh, thing. Go, yeah, please it's go. I'm sorry, Whatever. it's totally different, but no. I was thinking about the variety of things you all have done that help birds. We have uh, a good relationship with the Plumas National Forest and some of the wildlife managers there. There has been in concert with the Plymouth Forest Service, uh, a man who has pa been paid, has gotten good grant money to track, tag, and put radio transmitters on rough-legged hawks. We have been able to, <laughs> with the good graces of the Robertis, come here, set live traps, catch the hawk, have weigh and measure, do all that kind of stuff, and then the telemetry outfit is put on the hawk and they can track them everywhere. They know where they're going. They know where to look. And they've been doing this for at least five years that I know of. And it's very important to be able to study this kind of thing. And that's not with, without these kinds of ranches and the support from the ranchers, we'd be hard pressed to be able to do these studies. Yeah, you'd be out on that road over there where everybody pulls over to the side. Well, we can use some public parks, but there are problems using public parks for this kind of activity. Yeah, well, I think it's important that we do thank the, uh, the Robertis for, for hosting us and allowing us to come out. So thank you, Rick. We're just taking care of this place for a while. It doesn't belong to us, but uh, and these birds and these things are going to be here longer than I will be. That tracking device has been encouraging to us to see how far these birds fly. This one particular hawk flies from here to Elko, Nevada, and then to, on to Alaska, I think, mm -hmm. and every year. So we're only doing a small part of that bird's life, but it's, it's our obligation to do it right. So what we've found out with most groups that there are some great people in whatever group we have had on the ranch, and we do have a lot in common. The Audubon is trying to do their very best. We just need to get together with a lot of these groups and share our common good. And we'll be a lot better in our valley and in our world if, if we can get over some of the small things and focus on the big ones. Awesome. All right, thank you guys. You can go read further.
No, we could go have burgers. <laughs> if you'd like to see photographs of our visit, including pictures of birds from the Roberti Ranch and even a few from my urban backyard, visit www.calcattlecouncil.org. If you want a glimpse into our travels, we started an Instagram account at Cal Cattle Country. There's also a link to a checklist from our birding tour from Kelby Gardner of the Plumas Audubon Society, so you can see which of the species of birds we, well, that he, spied. There's also a birding tour at Roberti Ranch in Sierra Valley that is free to the public on Saturday, April 23rd from 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. Space is extremely limited. If you're interested, email us at media at calcattle.org and we'll pass your info along. You need to act fast because early bird, well, you know what I mean. If there's something you'd like to hear on stories from California cattle country, you can contact me at ryan at calcattle.org or leave comments on our various social media posts. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thank you.